please take your Bibles with me and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Turn directly to your New Testament. It is the first book or letter in your New Testament. We'll be very quickly in just a moment for very little amount of time in Matthew 26. Then we'll go to Luke chapter 22 and then a, one or two other passages in the New Testament. Not as much flipping today as we have been as we've been walking through this series on the church. What does the Bible have to say about the church? Who are we according to God's Word? What are we supposed to be about? What are we giving ourselves to? All of those sorts of things. We began looking at the two ordinances of the church. Last week we looked at baptism. What is the... Scriptures say about baptism and how the church is to practice baptism and view baptism and understand baptism. And today, we're coming to the second ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper. What does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper and how are we to view it and practice it and understand it and all of those sorts of things. Let me begin with a story from history before we begin to look at the Scriptures. This event took place in the 1500s during the time of the Protestant Reformation in the city of Geneva. Now, during these times, a little bit of background before the story. During these times, um, there was no real separation between church and state. The church meddled in the state's affairs and the state meddled in the church's affairs. In fact, during this time, we, we call the church leaders of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Reformation magisterial reformers. That means that they were highly involved in their city governments and, and in their, the respective kingdoms that they lived in at the time. So much so that the pastor of the local church usually held a seat on the city council. And the city council had much more sway and input and authority than what we're used to today. The city council would even govern not just the practices of the church, but even the beliefs of the church from time to time. And this would occasionally put the city officials at odds with the local church. And pastors and city officials would go back and forth about what was right. This particular story is one of those instances. It's about a church in Geneva uh, that was pastored by the reformer John Calvin. And he was at odds over a particular issue with his city government. The issue was a ruling of the local church in which they prevented a particular man from taking the Lord's Supper because he was living in open, obvious, unrepentant sexual sin. And the church said, because of your lifestyle and your behavior, we are not going to let you take the Lord's Supper. And this particular man appealed to the city government and the city government overruled the church and said, no, he can take the Lord's Supper. Calvin disagreed with that decision. And on the next Sunday, Lord's Day, he began to preach his sermon as normal. Once he finished his sermon, there followed a time of prayer that was a custom in their church. And then he began to prepare the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper. And as he prepared the Lord's table, when he was finished, this particular man who was barred from the Lord's Supper was in service that day with several of his friends, swords strapped to their sides, and they began to rush the Lord's Supper table. And they tried to overtake it, determined that they were going to participate. This is what John Calvin did in that instance. He protested them by flinging himself onto the Lord's table, covering with his body the elements of the Lord's Supper. And he yelled out with such a loud voice that echoed through the building and the congregation. And this is what he said. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. The pastor who followed John Calvin at that church after he died, it was also his first biographer, wrote, 
about that day, and he said, the sacred, sacred ordinance was celebrated that day with a profound silence and under solemn awe in every person present as if God Himself had been visible among them. I share that story to say, was John Calvin crazy? Not for other reasons, but for that particular reason. Had he lost his mind? Was he given too much credibility to one particular ordinance or not? Was he right? Was he doing the right thing? Furthermore, what made him so convinced that the Lord's Supper was of such importance that he would even risk his life to protect it and defend it? Why would, you, why would any person sacrifice himself? Even furthermore, why were the people so convinced that they needed to partake of it? Why were they so convinced? What was the prevailing thinking of the time that people would rush the Lord's Supper table? That a pastor would throw himself on it to defend it? Well, I hope as we walk through the Bible today and examine what it actually is, we might too begin to understand why Calvin acted the way that he did. And while many, why many other pastors of his time acted the way that they did. And have all throughout church history to adamantly defend the Lord's Supper table and to uphold it as a very important act and practice in the church. Now, the Lord's Supper, believe it or not, is even more complex than baptism. Last week we looked at a little bit of the complexities about baptism all throughout church history. Baptism has fundamentally come down to three primary views. A salvific view of baptism, which means that you can be saved through baptism. There's an infant view of baptism, which means babies should be baptized to be in the covenant of God. And then there's the Baptist view of baptism, which we call believer's baptism, which means we only baptize people upon credible professions of faith. And we do so by immersion. And, and all throughout church history, those things have been debated and discussed and written about and so on and so on and so on. Well, where baptism has three predominant views, the Lord's Supper now has five predominant views. And all five of those views vary among each person that holds them. The issue is incredibly complex. Largely because just like baptism, there's a degree of mystery behind it to a certain extent. Now, I don't expect you to understand or, or even remember all the things I'm about to share with you, but because we're all good theologians, I want to tell you the five predominant views of the Lord's Supper. There's first the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, which is known as transubstantiation. Transubstantiation means transform. The elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. That when the priest during Mass says certain things and Pray certain prayers that God mysteriously, legitimately, literally transforms the elements into the real body and the real blood of Christ. That was the prominent view up until John Calvin and his friends in the Protestant Reformation. After the Protestant Reformation, a few other views were birthed. The Lutheran view, which comes from Martin Luther, believed in consubstantiation. Con is the word for with, which means... He didn't agree with the Catholic Church that the elements actually literally changed, but he's not far off from them. He believed Jesus was in and behind, or, or in front and behind and above and underneath the elements. He was all around them, but they didn't literally change. You have another view, which was Calvin's view himself, that uh, Jesus was uniquely spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. The elements themselves didn't change, but Christ was present with His people in a profound, almost inexplainable sort of way. You have another one named Zwingli who viewed it as merely a memorial. It's just symbolic. There's nothing more to it than remembering. And we remember by act. And then you have, as we identified last week, the Baptist view or Anabaptist view, uh, which deals with things like regularity and things like open or closed communion and all sorts of things that I'll get into in just a moment. Because I don't want to bog us down with all the varying viewpoints out there because I don't think that would be as productive. I want to do what I did with baptism and focus almost exclusively 
on what we as Southern Baptists believe about the Lord's Supper, why we believe that and why we practice it that way and why we have held to it in Baptist history that way. Now, I also want to add to that discussion that I admit and confess some of my views of the Lord's Supper do not align with our church's view of the Lord's Supper. Which I mean to say, I view and believe certain things that our church has not believed or practiced before and may not believe or practice before. And so I'll try to identify some of those as we go through. But I hope to show you at least why we generally as Baptists have viewed the Lord's Supper the way that we have. And why Calvin viewed it as such critical importance to defend. Let's begin in Matthew 26 asking the question, what is actually the Lord's Supper? It's instituted by our Lord Himself in the Gospel accounts, three Gospel accounts, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Matthew and Mark are so close in their uh, relaying of that narrative that I'm not going to look at Mark's account. We're just going to look at Matthew's account and then Luke's account and then one or two other New Testament passages. Look in Matthew 26, verse 26 through verse 29. Jesus is with His disciples He's been participating in the Passover meal right before His execution. A meal that He has taken several times that He's grown up with that the Israelites have participated in for hundreds of years, centuries. And yet this time it's different. Jesus, in this Last Supper moment, morphs the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And He does away with the Passover meal, in effect, and institute something much more significant, something much more serious. And so verse 26, it says this, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body. And He took a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. Here are the most basic elements. In fact, Matthew and Mark's version of this account is the most simplified version. And it's the most basic elements of the Lord's Supper and what we believe about the Lord's Supper as Protestant Baptist believers. We see some unchanging things take place described by Jesus. He equates the bread with His body. He equates the cup with His blood. He equates His blood with the covenant and securing that new covenant. He calls the disciples to partake both of the bread and the cup. And then in verse 29, He interestingly so looks to the future and tells them this has some significance for the future kingdom of God. Now those elements are unchanging. That's always going to be true in the rest of the scriptural understanding of the Lord's Supper and the rest of the history of the practice of the Lord's Supper. The bread is always connected with the body. The cup is always connected with the blood. The blood is always connected with the covenant. The calling of the church is to partake of both. And there is a future element to it. Now let's look in Luke chapter 22. Because Luke adds some things. He doesn't take away. But he adds a few more details as is his custom in writing. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. Verse 14, Luke writes and says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Luke adds a few things, most notably there in verse 15. Jesus' phrase, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. And he knows what he's about to do with this Passover. Again, he's about to change this Passover. He's about to morph this Passover. It's about to carry much more significance to it. And he says to the disciples, I have really, 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 really longed for this moment. Which tells us something. It tells us that in Jesus' view, what he's about to do carries some significant weight. It's of such importance to the Lord Himself that he's looking forward to this moment before the suffering that he knows is about to take place. Secondly, where Matthew and Mark record Jesus looking to the future only once, Luke has him referred to it twice. Verse 16 and again in verse 18. It's an unmistakable emphasis. There is a future reality connected to the Lord's Supper that shouldn't be neglected or ignored or missed by God's people. But most notably, Luke's additions come in verses 19 and 20. First, most significantly, Jesus calls us to remembrance. Which means a couple of things that are very important. It means, number one, that this is to be a continuing institution for God's people. I want you to remember something, and I want to give you this visible, visible picture for you to remember. And I, I, want it to, I want to make it interactive so that you remember. That your whole self is in, involved and embroiled in remem remembering this moment. And in fact, that's what happens with the Lord's Supper, right? We taste, we touch, we hear... We see, we smell, we consume and ingest. Our whole selves are involved. That's just the physical side of it. But what else is intriguing is that in technical terms, the Last Supper is not the same as the Lord's Supper. Though the Last Supper sets a practice and a precedence. The Lord's Supper looks back to what Christ has done. The Last Supper is, is anticipating what Christ will do. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't suffered yet. He will in a few hours. But this takes place before. And yet, He says, remember. Remember what? Nothing is there to remember yet. But He's laying the foundation for His people to take special note of what is about to happen and reflect upon it and respond to it and constantly remember it when you come together. So where this supper anticipates our supper, our Lord's table, our Lord's supper, reflects and looks back. Secondly, and even more significant than remembering, comes in the language of the end of verse 19 and verse 20 when Christ is speaking. When He says, this is My body, which is given for you. And in verse 20, this cup, it's poured out for you to certify, enact, ratify, complete, begin the new covenant in my blood. Even at the Lord's Supper, Jesus is pointing to a vicarious substitutionary death. What are we to remember when we partake of this feast? We are to remember a very, very personal moment between Christ our Lord and us. Because Jesus' body isn't just broken generally. It's broken specifically. It isn't just given up in a standard sort of 
generalized manner. It's given up in a very specific, narrow, intentional manner. It's given for you. It's given for me. When Christ sheds His blood, and when His blood pours out and drips down the cross and splashes into the dirt and makes mud and, and is shed in the presence of, the, of this legal transaction between God, why is it shed? It's shed for us. Poured out for you and I. Why does Christ go to the cross? Why does Christ give His life? And much, much, much more seriously, why does Jesus drink in the full, unadulterated wrath of God? The language is still applicable for us. It makes me think of Romans chapter 5. Let me just flip over there real quick because I'll only be there very quickly. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. A passage you should know and at least paraphrase says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps even for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The Gospel language in the New Testament is abundantly clear. Jesus breaks His body. Jesus pours His His blood, God sends His Son for us. Sinful humanity. Now, begin to let your minds be overtaken just for a moment and let your hearts be affected just for a moment. We're talking about the transcendent God of the universe. Grander, more glorious, more magnificent than we can comprehend. Bigger than even what the Bible describes to us. Holy, pure, Righteous in every way without an ounce of falsehood, an ounce of darkness, an ounce of mistake, an ounce of wickedness. Looking at those of us who are ungodly, which you and I know means the exact opposite of who God is. And instead of striking us down with wrath as we deserve, He acts on our behalf. And He breaks His body. And He sheds His blood. And then... In both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're connecting this blood. Jesus connects this blood to a covenant. What is this covenant? Well, there's an old covenant and a new covenant in the most generalized terms. The old covenant was the Old Testament living where sins were passed over by the sacrifice of an animal. We have some understanding of the sacrificial system, even if it's elementary. We know that an animal was taken to the altar sacrificed, shed its blood. Its blood was poured out on the altar so that God would look over, pass over our sins. But it was a temporary transaction, right? It had to be done often. And it had to be done for the people of Israel on a major scale once a year. I mean, we're talking millions upon millions of animals sacrificed so that sins might be temporarily passed over. But now all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, there's reference to a new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, there's reference to a new covenant. What is this new covenant? It's this promise of God to not pass over sins, but to forgive sins. And not in a temporary fashion like under the old sacrificial system, but in a permanent, eternal sort of way. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Actually, Hebrews 9 and 10. Let's, let's do a bit of reading this morning. Now, there's reference to this before and after, but uh, Hebrews 9, uh, beginning in verse 11, is a main section where the author of Hebrews begins to tell us the significance of this new covenant. And that this new covenant where God eternally, permanently forgives our sins isn't based upon the blood of animals. It's based upon the blood of someone far greater, someone far more supreme. It's based upon the blood of Jesus. Why does Jesus' blood have to be spilled? Because without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ spills His blood to eternally 
wash away our transgression. Look in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places. And get this, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. Thus securing what? An eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of sinful, defiled people with the ashes of a heifer, if those things sanctify for the purification of your flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more will the blood of Christ affect our entire being, work from the inside out? Therefore, verse 15, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I'm reading ahead. Let me skip down. Look down into verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Verse 20. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23, thus, here's the reason, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly thing themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Jesus Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor does He offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then He would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Skip to chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Let me, let me pause and just try to interpret or illustrate quickly. The gist here, the main thrust, is that the law in the Old Covenant will never eternally make you right before God. It will never satisfy and take away your penalty for sin. It will never wash you clean. It will never make you right in the standing and presence of God. It has to be done over and over and over and over. It is not the way of salvation. In fact, verse 1 at the end of uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It can never, even continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We need a better covenant. Your sacrifices, your works, your ability, your effort will not forgive you of your sin. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered if they were effective? If the spilling of the blood of a bull or a goat or sheep or a lamb, whatever, was effective for the forgiveness of your sins, then why would it need to continually be offered? Verse 3 of chapter 10. These sacrifices are a reminder of sin every year. For Verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, of, of course, and that's beyond me because I'm not a Jew, I'm not living in Israel, and I'm not making sacrifices. But here's the main point for you and I today. We still try to live and we still force ourselves to live under the law constantly when we think by our own efforts, by our own atoning for our sins in whatever way it is, we can make God happy. And in our particular context, our particular society, our particular culture, we think we can make God happy by all sorts of good works, right? Church attendance, giving money, charitable organizations, volunteering, praying and reading the Bible and joining a church and on and on and on and on and on. We look at all these good things and we think through those good things, I'll make myself right before God. It's the exact same principle as trying to offer a bull or a goat or a lamb to make yourself right with God. And the same solution, same answer, same result occurs. You cannot make yourself right before God that way. You need something better. You need something greater. You need something more eternal, more satisfying, something supreme. Look in verse 11 of chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Talking about the old covenant law and sacrificial system. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and then we quote Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, God promises long ago that He will forgive sin. And the sacrifices of the sacrificial system don't do it. How will God forgive sin? It's by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ under this new covenant where He promises that the blood of Christ is enough to forgive you forever. Forever. We don't have an altar here where we're sacrificing animals this morning. And we don't because the blood of Christ has been shed for us and that shedding has made us eternally, permanently right before God. That church is the new covenant. And Jesus, back to, to Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Jesus says, it's the shedding of that blood for that covenant that I want you to remember because it's done on your behalf. What do we do in the Lord's Supper? Let me tell you what we do. We remember that Christ gave Himself for us that we might be eternally and permanently forgiven by God. We're not going through rituals where we just eat a stale cracker and drink some stale grape juice. We're remembering that God has made an eternal way to be right with Him. We're proclaiming that our faith is in the blood of Christ alone. We're declaring that Jesus is enough for us to be forgiven completely. Greg Allison, a terrific theologian, one of my professors in seminary, he wrote this about this portion of the Lord's Supper. He says, The new covenant would not be ratified or certified by the blood of bulls and sheep and goats, but by Jesus' own blood. He would offer Himself as the sacrificial Passover lamb, and through a violent death, He would pour out His blood, not for the passing over of sins, but for their forgiveness. Of sins, and do you understand? There's a, there's a, 
significant, important distinction between those two things. Passing over your sins means that they could possibly, maybe, be brought up later. But forgiving you of your sins means they're taken away forever. What has Christ done in breaking His body and shedding His blood? What has He done in giving Himself for us? It, has, it is that He has taken away our sins forever. And the Lord's Supper, it's the remembering of that. It's a holy, precious, spiritual moment where the church comes together and celebrates this reality. Our sins are forgiven because Christ gave Himself for us. We don't live by that old sacrificial system anymore. We don't have to deal with sin on a temporary basis. We live in a state of permanence with Jesus. Today, we have the joy of eating a meal together after church. And everyone is invited. If the food or the turkey is bad, it's Brian Sapp's fault. But it's going to be a great time. There are always great times in my opinion. It's a time where we're not just ingesting food, but we're building relationships, right? We're spending time together. We're nurturing unity. We're building love. We're enjoying love. And in fact, some of us need some of that right now. Aren't we going to be honest that we've had a rough week, we feel alone, and we need the love of brothers and sisters? And today's a way to do that. There's a lot of spiritual and physical benefit when we eat meals together as a church. But as great as our fellowships over food are, they are never as wonderful as the Lord's Supper. It's a feast unlike any other. I have to speed it up as is customary for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 10 and chapter 11 are the only other verses, only other chapters, only other passage that talks about the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. In the whole Bible. And I'm going to hit the highlights, give you the highlights. And if you'd like to visit about it more in depth later, we, we certainly can. Paul's writing, especially chapter 10 and chapter 11, because there's a grievance he has against the Corinthian church. They're not partaking of the Lord's Supper rightly. Primarily, there's a lot of sin and disunity in the church, and they think that they can just willy-nilly enjoy the Lord's Supper. In fact, they don't even wait on each other to do so. There's a lot of disunity even in the participation of the Lord's Supper. And Paul's writing and saying, this is just insane. This is crazy. And you can't be doing this. And in that, he begins to explain what it actually is. In verses 23-26, through 26, he gives his clearest explanation. It's almost verbatim, just from the mouth of Jesus. Except in verse 26, Paul adds a phrase. And it's a phrase that's not new. It's a phrase that he also gets from Christ's institution. In verse 26, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Just like Jesus had a futuristic element to the Lord's Supper, Paul does so too in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Now most fundamentally, he roots it in connection to the death of Christ. You proclaim the death of the Lord. And we've talked about this with the shedding of blood and the new covenant. And that's the way that we're forgiven of sins, not by works or sacrifices or other things like that. So we get this point, I hope by now, that we are proclaiming Christ has died for us. But the futuristic element continues on. He says, until He comes. Which means the the Lord's Supper is not just fundamentally rooted in the death of Christ. It's also rooted in the resurrection and return of Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when He says, I'm not going to partake of this again until the kingdom of God comes. What does He have in mind there? Well, number one, He has in mind that the Lord who died didn't stay dead, did He? He's also alive. And you and I have faith and salvation only because Jesus is alive. If Jesus is still in the grave, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are the most foolish people who have ever existed. 
But he says also, because Jesus has resurrected, we will resurrect. In fact, at the end of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he says, we're justified, not by the death of Christ, but by the resurrection of Christ. Which means we're made right before God because Christ is alive, making us right before God. Now, what does he mean and Jesus mean about this return business? They mean, they both mean, that the Lord's Supper is to be a reminder that one day this ordinance will cease. And one day, we will find ourselves seated at a greater table, partaking of a greater feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when the bride of Christ is presented spotless and pure and righteous. And showered in the love of Christ. See for us the Lord's Supper isn't just something we reflect back on. It also makes us look forward to the future. But one day. We won't be sitting here taking the Lord's Supper anymore. One day. When Christ comes back we'll be with Christ. Eating a wedding feast instead. We are, when we eat the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming the whole gospel. That there is a God who looked at sinful humanity and He stepped in and saved us through a living Savior who then died, who also resurrected and who is coming back to bring us to a greater banquet. You now see the seriousness and even the joy that we have as God's people to, to have such an ordinance, to have such a, a reminder, right? We celebrate the death of our Lord, but we also do so with an eye to the future. That our Lord is coming back for us. So what is the Lord's Supper? It's a clear, honest reminder and an agreement to that God has sent His Son to die for our sins and that those who place their faith in Him can be forgiven of those sins forever and will one day be united with Him in heaven. It's a clear picture of the Gospel. But what does it do? Let me give you just four quick things of what it does and then let me give you six quicker things of how we should treat it. Number one, what does the Lord's Supper do? What's its spiritual benefit? It encourages and strengthens our faith. And we need that constantly. It reminds us that God is keeping His promise, that God is saving sinners, that God will keep us Why does God make us remember? Why does God want us to remember? Because He wants us to remember how much He loves us continually. He wants a constant reminder set before us that He is keeping up His end of the bargain. So it encourages and it strengthens our faith. Number two, it establishes and nurtures the unity of the church. We are supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper together. In fact, it's an act of the church. There's this whole new trend and notion out there that it can be practice in other ways that I totally, honestly, frankly disagree with. I have seen people take the Lord's Supper at their wedding ceremonies. And if that's you, well, it is what it is. I've seen them take them in their homes. I've seen them take them in small groups. I've seen them take them with just their friends. That is not the practice of the Lord's Supper. It is meant to be taken and partaken in the context of the church, gathered together in true, honest unity. Number three in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there's more to these points than I'm sharing right now for time's sake. I could continue to expound my argument, but I won't. Chapter 10 tells us that in the Lord's Supper, there's a real, unique, honest, mysterious participation with Christ. Which I believe means Jesus is uniquely present corporately during the Lord's Supper. 
The elements don't change. But he is present. And Hebrew, I mean, first Corinthians chapter 10 and first Corinthians chapter 11 tells us he's present to bless or to judge. To bless the proper practice or to judge the improper practice. In fact, Paul tells us in chapter 11, verse 27, he says, examine yourself first. Because anyone who eats and drinks, verse 29, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He says, in fact, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have even died. Because you have profaned the Lord's table. You have desecrated the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. Christ is uniquely present as we participate with Him. And number four, the Lord's Supper calls us to holiness. Back to verse 27. Examine yourself so that you don't take in an unworthy manner. What does it mean to take in an unworthy manner? For the church, it means to take if there's disunity among us. In all honesty, if there's ever strife in this church family, then we must cease taking the Lord's Supper until it's resolved. That's the whole point of chapter 11. But there's other unworthy ways. If you're living in unrepentant sin, if you're under the discipline of the church, I believe in close communion. That's where I differ from our church. If you refuse to unite with God's people, that's what close communion means. All of those things are calls to holiness. So how should we treat the Lord's Supper? Should we fling ourselves on it like Calvin if it's in threat of being profaned? Yes. You can leave that to Larry. How should we treat it? How should we practice it? Number one, with examination. Honest confession. Honest repentance. Honest self-examination. Remembering that the Lord's Supper is not for the perfect, it's for the repentant. So there's great joy in it. Indeed, when Paul's talking about unworthy manners, primarily he's not talking about a person, he's talking about particip participation. Are you participating in an unworthy manner? That does come down to the person. That's a separate discussion. Number two, how do we practice it? How do we view it? How do we treat it? We do so with joy. With true, genuine joy. That Christ has died on our behalf and we are permanently forgiven. Number three, with thanksgiving. Honest, sincere gratitude. Number four, in obedience. We do it regularly. Number five, we've already mentioned, how do we practice it? Corporately, not individually. We do this together as a church. Zwingli once argued that Taking the Lord's Supper is a testimony of your allegiance to Christ before the witnesses of the church. I think there's some truth to that. We are corporately saying together, we all belong at this table because we are all believers. And we unite in that. Number six, we take it with the proper elements as Scripture provides and directs. There's so much information that we can look at and talk about in regards to the Lord's Supper. My rushing through the end of this should be testimony to that. But the main thing I would have you understand and take away this morning is that God has given us a visual reminder of His extreme love for us. A love beyond anything this world knows. A love beyond our own comprehension. Our Lord broke His body and shed His blood that we might be permanently forgiven, permanently united. And when we eat the feast of the Lord's Supper here on this earth, while we await His return, we are resting in that very truth. It's something that we view solemnly, something we view with great joy and gratitude. It is something only for believers. You cannot take the Lord's Supper if you have not first genuinely been affected by His body and His blood shed for you. And those of us who are believers, let us begin to view this ordinance with great reverence, great respect, great eagerness 
to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Our Father, we thank You because You knew that our faith would need to be strengthened over and over and over again. So You've given us this call to remember, to regularly remember that You initiated salvation, that You took the step, that You call us to be saved, that You are upholding Your end of the covenant, that You have broken Your body and shed Your blood, O Lord, that we might forever be forgiven and eternally redeemed and eternally right with God. Thank You for that reminder. We need it. We need it more often than we realize. Thank You for reminding us that You're keeping up Your promise. Help us, Lord, not to practice these things with blind ritual instincts but to practice these things with great commitment, great joy, great thanksgiving. In both baptism and the Lord's Supper, You give us a visual picture of how much You've loved us and what You've done for us and what You are doing for us. Let such glorious truths not be lost on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.